Welcome to the Outsider Theory Podcast, where we explore the mutations of theories outside of the authorized spaces of intellectual life, as well as the ever-alluring figure of the outsider. If you're interested in this project, please subscribe to the podcast and follow my work at OutsiderTheory.com and at OutsiderTheory on Twitter. I'm happy to welcome Alex Kashuda to the Outsider Theory podcast today. She has a Substack and is also the host of Subversive Podcast, which I had the pleasure of appearing on not too long ago, and I'm happy she was willing to join me today. So thanks for coming on, Alex. Thank you for having me, Jeff. This is really exciting to be uh, here at the start of this new project. So I invited Alex to talk about a somewhat strange and disturbing subject that I've been interested in for some time and um, that I discovered at some point we share some interest in. And this is the Countess. And I'm actually going to, how's your Hungarian pronunciation? I'm going to ask you for uh, the correct um, pronunciation. I think my pronunciation is pretty correct. So it would be uh, Erzsébet Bátori. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Erzsébet Bátori, who is a a sort of legendary figure and one who um, has appeared in quite a bit of popular culture. She's often been thought of as the real life inspiration for vampire stories and is also just a a strange and disturbing, as I said, um, historical figure who whose deeds are so extreme that in some way she kind of blends into myth. And she's someone who was very much of interest to certain sort of avant-garde surrealist figures in the early to mid 20th century. And it was really through that that I became interested in her first. She um, is the subject of a, a very... Uh, fascinating and quite beautiful biography by Valentin Penrose, who's a French surrealist writer who became fascinated with her in the same period that the surrealists were fascinated just with figures who represented extremes and transgressive forays beyond the boundaries of civilization and moments in which the sort of dark recesses of the human unconscious seem to bubble up. So she's often thought of in relation to another figure named uh, Gilles Debray, who was a, a mass murderer of, of young boys in France in the 15th century. So she comes about one and a half, two centuries later in Hungary, although what's now um, Slovakia, I believe, is, is where she yeah, I think she was born in, in the territory of Hungary, but she lived most of her life in, in current Slovakia. Yeah. And so she similarly was essentially a, a serial killer or mass murderer of young girls. And just as a an introduction, I'm going to read from one of these sort of surrealist engagements with her, which is a an essay by um, the Argentine poet Alejandra Pisarnik, who was a interesting avant-garde writer somewhat later than Penrose. And her essay on, on Batory is a kind of lyrical book review you might describe it as, because it's really just a, a meditation on this biography by Penrose, which I would say is, is quite powerful and beautiful in its own right. So I'm just going to read a, for a bit of background the introductory section of this essay, which just lays out the facts, but also kind of uh, evokes what is what is fascinating and even alluring about this figure. 
So this is from Pisarnik. There is a book by Valentin Penrose, which documents the life of a real and unusual character, the Countess Battery, murderer of more than 600 young girls. The Countess Battery's sexual perversion and her madness are so obvious that Valentin Penrose disregards them and concentrates instead on the convulsive beauty of the character. It is not easy to show this sort of beauty. Penrose, however, succeeded because she played admirably with the aesthetic value of this lugubrious story. She inscribes the underground kingdom of Erzsébet Battery within the walls of her torture chamber and the chamber within her medieval castle. Here, the sinister beauty of nocturnal creatures is summed up in the silent lady of legendary paleness, mad eyes, and hair the sumptuous color of ravens. A well-known philosopher includes cries in the category of silence. Cries, moans, curses form a silent substance. The substance of this underworld is evil. Sitting on her throne, the countess watches the tortures and listens to the cries. Her old and horrible maids are wordless figures that bring in fire, knives, needles, irons. They torture the girls and later bury them. With their iron and knives, these two old women are themselves the instruments of a possession. This dark ceremony has a single silent spectator. So I had been somewhat aware of her, I think primarily because I was very into horror movies growing up, but I had not really known much about the historical reality of her life until I came upon this essay by uh, P. Sardinik. I I was haunted by it subsequently. And so I, I sort of made an interest in her into something of a hobby and have read other things about her and also tried to survey some of the pop cultural representations of her life. So I'll talk about that a little bit later. But I'm curious for you, Alex, what your um, prior awareness of of Batari was. And I'm curious because you're actually from the general region of the world that she is from, what her presence might be as a sort of historical figure there, if any. Yeah, yeah. It's... um... You know, this territory that I I live in now is used to be part of uh, Greater Hungary, uh, and it was essentially part of the the kingdom that was surveyed by uh, by I think her relatives, her brothers were you know voivodes of this uh, of this region where I live now. Um, so it, there's quite a, a bit of a historical echo here. Um, the stories are a bit kind of you know boogeyman esque. They're they're not necessarily people don't really have a very um, complex understanding of the story. At least I I didn't really have that much of a you know nuanced understanding. I knew about the blood baths. I knew about the uh, you know the the kind of um, the idea that she was trying to cling on to her youth. Um, that's something that's kind of seeped into the mythology here as well, that she was kind of youth obsessed and she was kind of trying to use black magic to to regain her, her lost youth. Um, and I think, you know, there's not really that much context to why she, you know, no one's really no one's really asking that question. She's just kind of a, a monstrous figure and. That's about what people know. Um, also, she's there's a bit of ethnic tension in this area because, you know, Hungarians and Romanians, you know, we've lived together for a long time, but they're still quite separate, separate ethnicities. So uh, her being like a kind of a Hungarian witch, you know, adds adds to the to the flavor of the of the, <laughs> the ethnic friction here, because, you know, as, as a Romanian representative, I mean, I'm also Hungarian partly, but I'm, I'm more Romanian ethnically. Um, you know, you, you, you know, she's essentially a Hungarian witch. So that's kind of what the, what the kids around here uh, see her as. Yeah, that's fascinating. And are you aware of to what extent she fits into the, the sort of vampire mythology that 
I think, you know, is, is what many people in um, Western Europe and North America sort of associate maybe most strongly with, with Transylvania, right? If it has a sort of stereotypical image, it's, it's connected with that. And I mean, are you, um, are you aware of her kind of being an inspiration for that? Cause I understand that's kind of a controversial. Aspect. Yeah. I think she's, she's definitely in the monster category, but I do at least here, the perception is that it's kind of a, a different thing. Um, especially because essentially the, the, the vampire mythology, the way it's exists now in the West was, you know, it's created by Bram Stoker and subsequently by everyone who imitated him and, and the stories. So there was kind of a, a nucleus of kind of like, um, you know, warlock, you know, bleeding people, um, but the bat imagery, things like that, that that's essentially, you know, the, the, uh, the fantasies of a, of a Scotsman who was really passionate about this region and, and, you know, kind of took the, uh, the legend of, of Ladraku, which was like a, a very, uh, you know, famous uh, voivode, which is kind of like the local, you know, chieftain who fought the Turks and was quite bloodthirsty. And, you know, there's all sorts of legends around him. Um, which partly say, you know, there is a bit of a vampire character to that, those legends, but that's kind of a very, that's a subplot to us as Romanians. But Bram Stoker really went with it and, and kind of created this whole universe of imagination from there. Yeah, that's interesting. And you bring up the, um, so the sort of bloody historical backdrop of of this story is is interesting as well, which you bring up in relation to to um, the Dracula myth that the, the origins of that in this kind of ongoing border war with the the Turks um, that was going on for many hundreds of years, as I understand it. And uh, so her, so Batari's husband, his name was Nadashdi, I believe. Um, mm-hmm. it doesn't discuss much in the Pisarnik essay, but but is you know figures significantly in the um, Penrose biography was an extremely decorated sort of warrior against the Turks and, you know, would sort of come home from being at battle pretty much constantly and, you know, would himself come home sort of covered in blood and spattered with mud and was just this, um, you know, also very violent figure, right? So there's an interesting um, parallel between the violence that she begins to inflict inside her castle and the violence that's kind of raging not far away, um, but you know at the same time the the she seems to have had this sadistic streak early on. There's a story of that's recounted in the essay of she, you know he's one time he's home from battle and he finds a servant girl who's been tied up in the garden and covered with honey and she's being you know attacked by sort of bees and ants and. Um, you know, this is one of the only hints he got of his wife's, what his wife was getting up to, it would seem. But um, it was only after he died that she really leaned into the these um, sadistic pursuits. But but there is some sense, at least in the Penrose biography, of just the, the kind of backdrop of, of incredible ongoing violence, um, you know, between the the sort of Christian and Muslim populations. So, so that's sort of an interesting... Uh, way that these legends are are tied to just it being a historically, you know, a region kind of riven with violence, right? 
Exactly, exactly. And these these conflicts, you know, like you said, they they raged for for hundreds of years. This was the conflict to be engaged in. You know, your your great grandfather was fighting the Turks, and your your son will probably do the same. Um, it's 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 quite heavily imprinted on even now. You know, if you ask anyone in Romania to tell you, you know, who's the, the biggest national hero, it would be um, either Vlad Tepes, which is Vlad Dracu, the uh, the vampire mm-hmm. figure, or Stefan Cermare also a Turk destroyer, Mihavitazu, also a Turk destroyer. So we have only all of our all of our heroes were engaged in some way or another in, in defeating the Turks. Yeah. So right, and this very much ties into her story, even though it's 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 very much the story of a kind of isolation from what was unfolding historically in a sense in this in this kind of artificial realm that she creates. So with that sort of general background. I'm just going to read um, two other things. One is the final passage of um, the Pisarnik essay, which introduces kind of the broader theme that I was hoping we could um, discuss in relation to her. And then I'm going to follow up with a passage from Camille Paglia. So here's the, the final two paragraphs of the Pisarnik essay. She was never afraid, she never trembled, and no compassion, no sympathy or admiration may be felt for her, only a certain astonishment at the enormity of the horror, a fascination with a white dress that turns red, with the imagination of a silence starred with cries in which everything reflects an unacceptable beauty. Like Saad in his writings and Gilles de Ray in his crimes, the Countess Battery reached beyond all limits the uttermost pit of unfettered passions. She is yet another proof that the absolute freedom of the human creature is horrible. So that's that. And then I wanted to read a passage from Palia because I think she is good at introducing the kind of broader theme that, as I mentioned, I'd like to introduce here, which is the theme of freedom, which is how Pisarnik ends her essay. So Palia, as far as I know, hasn't written extensively about Batari, but she does refer to her in sexual persona as quote, one of history's most intriguing women. So that's, that's interesting. But um, I'd like to quote from Palia's discussion of Saad, because clearly if there's any figure who we can use as a lens for thinking about the significance of Batari, it would be Saad, who about mm, two centuries after her, um, wrote a series of books that are essentially manifestos or apologias for precisely the kinds of extreme and eroticized violence that she practiced. So here's Palia and Saad. For Saad, getting back to nature, the romantic imperative that still permeates our culture from sex counseling to serial commercials would be to give free reign to violence and lust. Society is not the criminal, but the force which keeps crime in check. When social controls weaken, man's innate cruelty bursts forth. Sexual freedom, sexual liberation, a modern delusion. We are hierarchical animals. Sweep one hierarchy away and another will take its place, perhaps less palatable than the first. There are hierarchies in nature and alternate hierarchies in society. In nature, brute force is the law. Society is our frail barrier against nature. When the prestige of state and religion is low, men are free, but they find freedom intolerable and seek new ways to enslave themselves through drugs or depression. My theory is that whenever sexual freedom is sought or achieved, sadomasochism will not be far behind. Romanticism always turns to decadence. Nature is a hard taskmaster. It is the hammer and the anvil, crushing individuality. 
perfect freedom would be to die by earth, air, water, and fire. So thanks for bearing with me through the long passages, but I particularly wanted to highlight the closing phrases of both. The first, the absolute freedom of the human creature is horrible. And the second, perfect freedom would be to die by earth, air, water, and fire, which actually includes some of the instruments of murder and torture used by uh, Batari. She, she drowned, she burned, um, she buried alive, and so on. So um, that statement just stood out to me. So I invited you on partly because you're interested in critiquing the premises of freedom, um, especially but not only for women as they're offered by modern liberal ideology. So for example, in a recent essay in American Mind, you wrote, in defense of stigma, and critique the choiceless choice of infinite freedom. So I'm curious how this um, obviously extreme and chilling story um, for you might speak to these themes of freedom and restriction. Yeah, I feel like uh, as, as, you know it, it all plays into the this idea that I've been I've been kind of juggling and, and trying to 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 make sense of in the last probably in the last year. Um, and, and the Palia passage, it's very interesting. I actually read that passage very recently, maybe just a week ago, and it struck me that, you know, this is probably one of the best summations of, of the thesis, you know, that freedom is, um, you know, you have to be a quite, quite a naive person, essentially a romantic to take freedom, you know, at, at, at the, on the sicker price that it, it comes with. Um, so, the idea that you know any any person who's who's woke on nature will not you know will not accept that the definition of freedom because you know it's it's quite easy you know um like Polly has said i think it was quite close to this passage actually i think she said that all all roads from rousseau which is you know the uh the original uh, proponent of of total freedom and uh, and the, the noble savage to uh to sad is uh that all roads lead from rousseau to sad so um, it's, you know, the, the, um, the monstrosity of freedom is, is only, you know, um, it, it follows. It's just, it's just a kind of a, a natural, um, natural outgrowth of, of the idea that, um, you know, you, you can have the unrestricted human. Um, so yeah, I think that's, yeah, it's, there's just definitely lots of layers to this, but, uh, you know, I have to say, I, I completely agree with the, with the Palia passage and, and yeah, with the end of the first essay as well. So it's interesting in terms of the historical moment of, of Batari, she's a few background points. One is that she's living in this more, almost border zone, as we discussed before, where there is a great deal of violence just kind of happening in the background. Um, it's, it's, it seems to have been a relatively kind of wild region in the sense of not being particularly, you know, strictly governed. And, you know, if you read about her, there's, um, you know, there's also seemed to be a lot of sort of brigands and, and um, a lot of uh, thievery and so on going on. Um, so it is, it is a place where, you know, a, a sort of not wild west, but wild east, I guess, um, where where there, there is a certain freedom, especially to her because she is a an aristocrat, right? She's a quite wealthy and quite prominent. You know, she's actually related to the Habsburg line through marriage, and several of her family members are, 
you know, quite important figures in the local nobility and, and the sort of governing class. So she has a certain kind of freedom that comes with that. And she seems to have gotten away with her crimes, partly because of her status. And then the other thing that's sort of interesting about her is, you know, she is, uh, she, she's in an unusual seeming to us perhaps position of being, um, you know, quite an autonomous woman for her time. Um, you know, that probably because her husband is off fighting the Turks most of the time. So she's essentially left in charge of, of kind of running the, 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 the economy of the, you know, the sort of manor and the, the village that she controls. And, um, you know, so she is quite a, a sort of free woman for her moment. Um, and then another aspect that's sort of interesting is that she and her family are Protestants. So they, there's a sort of tolerance that's extended to them apparently because of their connections to the sort of imperial family. But, you know, they're Protestants in this, um, in this, uh, you know, Catholic realm, but, you know, there, there does seem to be a, a good amount of kind of local autonomy that allows them to, to do that. So those are all sort of interesting dimensions of this. Another one that I would add is that, you know, there's a great deal of kind of a sense of the local um, folk practices, right? That these, these women she employs, these kind of old crone, you know, sort of Macbeth weird sister types are clearly these kind of practitioners of sort of local folk magic. Um, And, you know, that's, that hasn't been stamped out by sort of witch hunts or, you know, inquisitions, it's, it's essentially yeah. kind of tolerated. So it's, it's an interesting thing, because it's, it's, you know, there are sort of hints of a kind of modernity in her story, and then hints of a great kind of archaism, right? And I find that interesting that it's, it's, um, it's, you know, in some sense, it's, it's very proto-Sadian, right, who's a quintessentially modern figure, yet it's also ensconced in this very archaic seeming space, yeah. So, so I don't know what your thoughts are about that. That was just some some yeah. great remarks. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like um, her case is definitely um, quite unique. You know, her circumstances and the fact that I I don't think anyone outside of her position, maybe like a handful of people in in all of Europe, would have had the the opportunity, the conditions, the the leeway that she had to be. Um, you know, this you know type of person in this circumstance and um yeah in a way like you said the uh it's it's got kind of a even a prehistorical connotation like a pre um pre-human you know animalistic uh side to it like the fact that you know this this most modern of women um used her 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 uh leash the the length of her leash to to just um reduce herself or reduce everyone around her to this pre-animalistic state you know it's mm-hmm. kind of like she she was on the train she was like on on the way to to <laughs> to emancipation and she went straight off the rails into into hell um and it's it's kind of in a way, it's kind of like um, you know, giving someone the the keys to the kingdom with the idea that oh, you know, she'll 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 manage the the household in a good way, <laughs> and then and then you realize oh no, it's it's just a, the worst mass murder in history. Uh, oops, <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't a good move. Yeah, it's and one fascinating detail from this is that well, I mean, there are quite a few. You know, she's a um, she's regarded as a great beauty in her time, and 
you know, to me, what's aesthetically fascinating about this story is just the juxtaposition of this kind of intense refinement, you know, that she's regarded as incredibly beautiful. There is one painting of her that survives, which is quite fascinating, where her, you know, her her clothes are quite impressive. Um, so she was stylish, right? She she was um she was someone who loved finery, um, you know, fine silks, um, you know, Italian textiles, um, furs. And so, you know, and obviously you brought this up before, I may come back to it. Um, she she was obsessed with the, maintaining the pallor of her skin, um, which was considered kind of a perfect porcelain quality. And this, according to some accounts, although it's controversial, was um, the reason why she started murdering these girls in order to um, bathe in the blood of virgins, um, which was considered or, you know, was explained to her by her sort of, you know, old crone um, sort of um, practitioners of, of magic that, that that was how she could preserve her youth. Um, but she, you know, but there's obviously something else to it because the, the tortures that she engages in are so extreme that, you know, it's, it's not just a kind of utilitarian killing in order to harvest their blood. I mean, she's really clearly finding intense erotic stimulation in, the, in these, these horrible actions. Yeah, it does feel like a a bit of a perfect storm because I mean, from the historical accounts, she sounds like someone who's you know your textbook of you know malignant narcissist who you know is not only you know obsessed with with her physical appearance but um, kind of has this this weird sexual layer to it. Or I mean, it, it I don't think there are any accounts of her actually engaging in sex acts with the girls except for like humiliation. Um, but there's there's obviously some some form of um, kind of Dionysian uh, vibe that's going on with yeah. this, and um, it's you know the I, I would love to see a, a, you know a, someone try to try to do kind of a, a, a profile of of her mental states like mm-hmm. it's just a, the complexity of of atrocities that she's managed to to rack up um, and the the rarity. Of, of this happening, you know, with women. I mean, there are, there are known female serial killers and, um, you know, Aileen Warnos and, and people like that, but they either uh, rise in combination with uh, a partner killer or they, uh, or they have, you know, some, some crazy trauma. But the, the thing is, you know, these things are much more documented now because we can't talk to Aileen Warnos and ask her what, what was in her mind. Um, and th- I think that's another layer to the, to the Bathory story. Um, because like you said, she was, she was a protestant she was you know liked by some hated passionately by others she was from a very powerful family that were kind of outliers so um there's also uh, a, a lot of talk of, of the story being uh padded or being some people even say that it's completely made up um it's, it's one of those things that you know you can't really go back and and uh yeah and review the the yeah, the you know you don't really know what the fact finding was because these these are regions where you know you had uh, vicious witch hunts, you had you know moral panics, you had all sorts of things, people having you know <laughs> all sorts of uh, visions, and 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 everyone kind of congregating and saying, oh no, that's that's her, she she did this, she did that. So um, yeah, I think that that's another layer to it, which kind of complicates it even more because I think the the historical account is quite vivid like there's so many people that you know yeah that that's say they saw what they saw and quite quite a few pieces of data that that may lead us to think that uh, but the fact that she's so 
unprecedented and you know even today i don't think there's anyone even i don't know if even a male killer has uh, has racked up that body count yeah i think gilles Duret is sort of the probably again it's it's probably hard to imagine you know it's it's really these two aristocratic figures right who because of the certain um freedom and prerogatives they enjoyed through that status and also because essentially servants were cheap right they they you could um if if you were primarily murdering people of very low status then you could get away with it for a while um their life was cheap anyway so it, yeah it seems impossible to imagine someone um achieving a comparable body count as you say just individually in the present because of um you know it it's we live in a more, you know, in that sense, uh, you know, a more policed world, obviously. Um, but yeah, I mean, going back to your point about the, the sort of Dionysian element of it, you know, another way in which she seems modern, I mean, specifically, she seems like a sort of 19th century decadence to me. And that's, you know, obviously one of Polly's main interests. Um, so on one hand, she has, you know, it's almost too perfect, right? She, in her castle, you know, the the upper floors are sort of her space of, of finery of, you know, where she can kind of parade around in her, you know, fully realized beauty. Um, and then the dungeon is just the space of absolute horror and atrocity. So it, it really is um, that, that juxtaposition of, of a sort of, you know, the, the power is this kind of artificial refined kind of Apollinean um, beauty of sorts and then the the dungeons as this as this purely Dionysian space but she she strikes me as a sort of very modern decadent figure at least in the way she's represented as as just someone who's um this idea of somebody whose whose nerves are constantly kind of overstimulated I mean Nietzsche talks about this right that you know the sort of modern sensibility is one of of this kind of intense overstimulation where you need ever more um, stimulating sensations in order to keep feeling something in a sense. And so, you know, her going to further and further extremes in order to satisfy whatever, you know, the, the kind of trance-like pleasure that these acts of of torture and murder seem to produce in her, um, you know, is very much <clears throat> this, this pursuit of heightened sensation, Right. That, that I think, you know, we associate with the kind of aesthetics of decadence, but that is obviously very um, relevant today. Right. In terms of, you know, porn and things like that. Right. The, the, the sort of um, the the overstimulated nerves of the sort of contemporary subject who's constantly needing to seek more and more extreme um, pleasures in order to or, you know, may, I mean, pleasures that might actually be a kind of pain or a kind of horror. Right. But that that are, um, you know, because the nerves are so overstrained, there's sort of a, a need to reach further and further. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like she's, uh, she's a character that in a way makes more sense nowadays. Uh, she's, mm -hmm. I think she's almost incomprehensible to people at, at that say, especially, you know, for a woman, because women's roles were very, very regimented, very delimited. And um, I also see why, why people like Polly are kind of, uh, not idolize her, but, you know, find her a very intriguing female character because she kind of embodies this, um, yeah, this, this dispensation of the, of the Apollonian in favor of the Dionysian and also, you know, kind of having, uh, having both. Um, I think that's, you know, the, that's kind of my, 
my my tension with Palia is that she uh, she presents these two spheres in an extremely compelling way. I mean, her prose is amazing. Um, but, you know, even after 700 pages of sexual persona, you don't really understand exactly what her um, what her position is. It's all very much a descriptive book. She's very she's a very permissive person. She's always, you know, obviously, you know, she's she's pro porn, sex positive, all that. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, she kind of I don't I've never understood how she squares that with the idea that, you know, um, the peaceful times are the ones where, you know, marriage is uh, is normative and uh um, you know, sex is controlled, you know, the the kind of the, the classical patriarchal times. Um, I guess, you know, she sees herself as a rebel, but at the same time, you know, once you extend tolerance to to the rebelliousness in, in, in all of human nature, which she does, you know, she sees Madonna as this, you know, you know, yeah, this creature, transformative being, um, you know, and, and the more you inject this stuff into pop culture, the the less of the peaceful times you'll have. So I feel like she's She's an extremely good descriptor of what is going wrong, but she's also having like the kerosene bottle in the other hand and just squirting, mm-hmm. you know, kerosene on the fire and saying, ooh, you know, <laughs> it's, it's mm-hmm. just kind of like, she's kind of like one of the horsemen of the apocalypse, you know, looks great in, in armor, but <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, well, I, um, this sort of relates to something I'm interested in, in relation to, um, in relation to um, Batari in that, so I'm, I'm very interested in the aesthetics of the Baroque. And I think the Baroque is a, a concept that we don't have that much in the sort of Anglophone world. It's, I mean, I learned it mainly by studying Spanish literature, but um, you know, it's this, it's this sort of aesthetic period when you had on one hand an intense um, kind of social conservatism, right? This is the period of the Counter-Reformation that it emerges out of. So you have um, this kind of reinvigorated um, Catholicism that, you know, is um, enforced by a close alliance between the monarchy and the church in Spain. And um, that, you know, it makes its way to other parts of Europe. I'm, I'm less familiar with the, the sort of Eastern Habsburg empire, but it is interesting that, you know, the, the Habsburgs that were... Um, were ruling in her time were definitely figures of this kind of Baroque period and sensibility, even though they, they were more tolerant of Protestants than in Spain where they would have all been, you know, forcibly converted or executed. But anyway, point I'm trying to get to is the Baroque is on one hand, this intensely conservative Catholic period where, you know, in many ways, orthodoxy and norms are enforced more vigorously than they had been in earlier times, um, because they had more of a kind of modern state apparatus, right, to, to do that. But then on the other hand, you had a great aesthetic fascination with kind of um, grotesques and extremes and kind of wonders and just things that um, that fell outside of the, um, the sort of parameters established by this quite conservative set of norms. And so part of the rationale for that is in some sense that um, you know, transgression or subversion needs to be kind of incorporated into the cultural constellation in order to kind of mark its boundaries. Um, and, and it actually is, you know, presented in very visible ways in the, the sort of culture of the period, um, you know, in part because in that kind of a, a relatively um, 
restrictive environment, you have a, a sort of um, fascination with with you know what transgresses it. But but in part because that was actually, I mean, in the you know you have um, as your on your Twitter page, I believe, and as part of your Substack, you you have Bosch's um, Garden of Earthly Delights, right? Which mm-hmm. I mean, to me, that's you know Bosch is probably one of the greatest figures of this. Because he's collect, you know, if you go to the Escorial in Madrid, outside of Madrid, which was the, you know, retirement palace of Philip II, who was, you know, one of the most conservative kings. I mean, he was really the one who drove the collection of ba- of Bosch, right? Who we think of as this kind of proto surrealist sort of <clears throat> um, creator of these strange and grotesque worlds. But so there was some, you know, within that kind of conservative dispensation, there was a great fascination for these kind of outlier figures. So I'm sort of interested in how Batari sort of fits into that moment, as well as how she kind of anticipates more modern um, trends. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's um, the striking the balance between, you know, the, the Dionysian and the Apollonian is this challenge of every society. And uh, I think, you know, the, the Baroque sounds like uh, a time when a, a, some form of equilibrium was found. And maybe essentially, I think that the, the main challenge for any society is to find that boundary, uh, to keep the boundary, to enforce the boundary, and to believe in boundaries themselves, which is something mm-hmm. that you know we have a, we have quite a challenge, um, you know, with with all this push to to normalize, destigmatize, and um, if if we you live in a boundaryless society, you know, you don't really have the category of of the the rebel, the the outsider, the the person who can maybe engage in in almost um, acceptable. Apollonian, uh, no, Dionysian excesses. Mm-hmm. Um, but if if there are no boundaries, then essentially, you know, it's 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 a free for all, and then you you kind of can't have either. Because if you if you are in kind of the space of, of Dionysian excess, uh, you get to that point of every addict where you're desensitized, and you know, like like with Bathory, you know, you need the bigger and bigger and bigger stimulus to to get you to get you off because because mm-hmm. that's the thing, you know, you people think that oh, you know, if, if you're if you live in this uh, in the mouse utopia, you have all the food you could want, all the entertainment, all the sexual whatever that you that you need, uh, you're just going to be happy. But that's not what happens. It's you know, there's uh, you know the, the marginal benefit falls off a cliff after a point, and you're just an addict to these super stimuli. So. Um, yeah, I, th- I think the the concept of boundaries is something we we need to we need to claw back from history because it's it, mm-hmm. it served us very well. So you know, when I think about what if we if we try to think about what remains, and <clears throat> I'll get into in a minute why the sort of recent pop culture representations of her have in some way not not really engaged with with the reality and um, or even with the myth. Um, and are sort of have a kind of domesticating effect. But, you know, it seems like in in the sense in which she, I think, still has the capacity to shock. Um, I mean, to be honest, I could I could read some other passages from these texts, but they're so, um, so utterly chilling that um, I, I wouldn't want to subject anyone to them against their will, um, because they're so, so horribly violent. Um, but, you know, what what seems, you know, so it seems like from a, a sort of permissive contemporary perspective, you know, that there, there's no, um, there's no stigma in her tastes 
precisely, right? The, the sensations she desires are simply the sensations she desires and in some way can be provided for by the market, right? The, the boundary is more that she, um, the, the boundary that she comes up against in the modern moment is more that she, um, you know, is violating consent in a sense, right? That she, um, she's not uh, behaving in a way that is contractual, right? Her, her victims are not, um, you know, bound to her by some kind of contract that they willingly enter into. So, you know, we have to imagine um, in, the, in the present, if her tastes, if, the, if her extreme tastes could be fulfilled through some sort of um, means that did not uh, violate that sort of, you know, that norm, which I think is, is the prevalent one, that, that there has to be some kind of um, contractual relation that both parties willingly enter into. So it's interesting that, you know, when, when you hear about sex robots and things like that, you know, one thing that's often brought up, or it's also interestingly represented in um, the show Westworld, right, is that one of the main things that people anticipate would happen is that everyone would would unleash their inner battery, right? This is often brought up that, um, you know, once you have these, these creatures who are not bound to some sort of sense of, um, who, you know, who are human-like, but are not bound to this norm whereby, you know, any act has to be contractually entered into by by all parties, people would do the kinds of things that and seek the kind of pleasures that that she sought. So that that's a way that I feel like in recent times the the sort of specter of her her particular sort of freedom has come up um, in in relation to sex robots. And this is often mentioned, right? That you know, well, if if we um, it's it's just assumed, I think, that as soon as you create them, then one of the main things that happen will happen is that people will incorporate sort of torturing and killing them into their sexual um activities with them so you know that's exactly yeah it's um you know it's, it's one of those those hypotheticals um because you know we don't really have any lever on this on this machine outside of consent at the moment and um the idea that you know you could subject yourself and these hypothetical creatures to to whatever you know crazed whim you might have and remain unscathed um, is also hypothetical. Um, mm -hmm. And I mean, you see, you know, people being subjected to supernormal stimuli uh, of all sorts, you know, you have that from food to, um, to entertainment, to scrolling, to, to all sorts of products that are extremely addictive, just because, you know, that's how you make people pay for them. Um, and it does change you, you know, we're, we're in a big conversation that, you know, interaction with, with high stimulus environments changes you. Um, I don't think that's different. Like if, if you have a, you know, a, a pedophile sex doll that some, you know, someone who's a pedophile might engage with maybe 15 times a day, you know, that's, that's an activity that, you know, leaves a mark in, in I mean, I'm not going to bring the soul into this, but, you know, at least in, in your psyche, um, you know, and there, there might be an effect of, you know, wanting to ratchet up, you know, you see this in, in all sorts of, of paraphilias, you know, things start, start chill, you know, uh, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer starts killing, you know, bunny rabbits. And then, you know, 20 years later, you know, you have, uh, you have a different situation. So um, there, there are all sorts of effects that, you know, this, the, the, the norm of consent, extremely weak norm, uh, it can't, can't encompass, you know, because especially these, these relationships are not uh, one-offs. They're not, you know, most of life is, is a, an iterative process. It's very cyclical. you you know, you go into situations and you go into them again uh, and you change. So 
Yeah. I think that's that's one aspect of it that's completely not encompassed by the way we we look at, at at most things today. Absolutely. And yeah, I think, you know, to me the whole the the fact that again as soon as the subject comes up, you know, the the, the imaginary that this story kind of embodies, right, of just absolute um a sort of absolute horror of sort of torture and violence um, is is almost just intuitively what people imagine will be the result of creating these sorts of things. And I believe there are sort of ethical debates in like robotics research about exactly this topic. Um, so, you know, th- this to me is one reason or one good piece of evidence that we can't really ignore the this, the disturbing implications of this tale in some sense, even even if it seems exotic and unusual because that they're you know that it whatever these impulses are they are uh real they do exist yeah exactly it's it's i feel like um you know this is kind of the the deep romanticism of our time um either softening or ignoring or um rationalizing the the that dionysian aspect you know the 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 nature aspect of our being um, and you know, the, the second something horrible pops up, we either try to, to rationalize it, you know, someone had a terrible childhood or someone, um, you know, is, uh, it's an, it's a normal impulse. You know, we, we find a little label to put on it when in fact, you know, the, the, the uncivilized human is, is, is quite a smart animal and it has interests that conflicts with yours. And, you know, it, you know, the human animal resorts to violence, to sexual violence, to all sorts of things. Um, sometimes even just for game theoretical reasons mm-hmm. like even you know rape is a mating strategy if you think about it it's uh it's not it's not all um you know you if you have that romantic perspective you we are essentially blinding yourself to to quite some, some uh, realities that any society needs to contend with if they want to yeah have a have a healthy future yeah and i think that's a good um segue into the the pop culture stuff i wanted to mention which I, I think shows this kind of unwillingness to engage with, you know, what's described in in the text I read at the beginning as as evil, right? It's it's that's what it fundamentally is. As an as an aside, I did want to mention it. It, it is notable that she um, she does anticipate the whole sex robot thing because at a certain point she and this is you know one of those ways in which she's kind of a, a creature of modernity as well as of these kind of archaic practices of witchcraft and so on, which is that she purchases a, an automaton from, from Nuremberg and uses it as one of her killing instruments, right? It's this, it's, the, it's basically the Iron Maiden, right? And it, it's, um, it's a female, you know, it's a female represented automaton and she essentially has it embrace these girls that she's chosen as victims and, and it, you know, sort of knives shoot out of it and it, it impales them essentially. Um, but you know, it's, and then in turn, you know, the way it's described in Penrose is, you know, similarly with this whole issue of like how she kind of constantly is seeking more and more stimulation, you know, it's, it's kind of a toy she buys and then she kind of gets bored with it um, after a while and moves on. But, you know, this is a way in which she's a very modern creature because I think she's, she's using technology actually. She also devises this cage, um, you know, so she is using these kind of uh, mechanical technologies that are evolving in this time to kind of stimulate her app- her um, appetites, but but then we also see her, you know, as we as us with technology, also becoming kind of inured and exhausted and moving on to the next thing. So, but anyway, she um, she's represented in 
a number of different. So, you know, as I, as I mentioned before, she was of great interest to the surrealists. Um, she's, uh, you know, represented in this book by <clears throat> Valentin Penrose. But then after that, she's, um, she's incorporated into pop culture in a number of different ways. There are quite a few sort of vampire and vampire related movies that include her. Um, it strikes me that her, this kind of goes back to something we were saying before, but you know, she, she often is presented as a kind of Dorian Gray figure because in a sense, you know, if her, her desire is to preserve her own youth and beauty and the only, but the only way she can do that is by engage, you know, just as Dorian Gray has the sort of increasingly horrible, you know, portrait locked away. Um, she has this dungeon in which she's constantly engaged in horror after horror. So that's, you know, that kind of Gothic, um, image of her is, is I think what's often fascinating to these, you know, these makers of horror movies and so on, um, which yeah. you know, largely fits into a kind of vamp- vampiric legend. Yeah, I feel like this just falls well into line with one of the, the bigger myths of modernity, which is the, the Faust myth, the, the Faustian mm-hmm. bargain, which is, you know, mm-hmm. just a, the, the selling your soul for the trappings of, you know, the highest Apollonian trappings, you know, mm-hmm. kind of mm-hmm. require this hellish sacrifice of yeah. essentially your your bodily nature and i feel like that's just a really good metaphor for you know what we've what the west has been trying to do um we've we've reached a point where we've essentially forgotten about about the realities of uh of you know of nature and i feel like in a way we're paying the piper now by by making this mistake yeah yeah and no that's that's great because she she really is i mean she's a contemporary of at least Marlowe's Faust play, you know, Dr. Faustus. So she is kind of actually living in the time when that myth first kind of becomes popularized. Um, and the way that she's, you know, kind of mixing new and old, she's mixing kind of these age old witchcraft practices with a sort of interest in modern technologies and the science of the period is, is an interesting sort of echo of the, the Faust story, you know, which, which yeah. has a bit of that combination as well. And I think it's one one interesting aspect to this that I, I didn't mention before is just the the, uh, the status of, of witchcraft and in, in these in these areas. I feel like there's much more of a, um, not an integration but a kind of accommodation with religion here. Uh, even now, I mean, uh, you know, there's a bit of competition between the church and, and witches, uh, mm-hmm. which is still a thing. Um, but um, even back in the day, you know, people had have had this kind of very ancient pagan superstitious type of religion i'm not sure but i mean bathory being uh being a protestant maybe her her tastes were a bit more modern were more refined but in terms of um especially the kind of like the orthodox part of uh of, of eastern europe um this is kind of like a very uh kind of dionysian religion it's very mm-hmm. kind of permeated by by paganism and by ritual and you know chants and all of that stuff and yeah witchcraft is, is it kind of blends you know there's a big venn diagram overlap with with the the supernatural um mm-hmm. and i feel like you know she she even maybe being a protestant maybe she wasn't you know from from her family but, but maybe being in this region she kind of adopted some of that um you know being united with the with the forces of darkness and then kind of appreciating that they're ubiquitous and you kind of have to play ball with them if you want to do anything yeah no that's that's fascinating. And uh, I think the way she, again, just kind of combines these different, these different sort of vectors, some of which seem to be 
kind of coming back from the future in some sense, um, you know, where she anticipates so much, but at the same time that she's, she's in a sense very rooted in the sort of practices that, I mean, there's fascinating descriptions of um, her sort of main witch consultant named uh, Darvulia, who's, you know, kind of wandering out of the woods surrounded by black cats and is just sort of, you know, the perfect, um, you know, representative of that sort of imaginary figure, but, you know, apparently is very much a real historical figure, right? Who's, who's written about in these, um, these documents and um, testimonies that go into her trial. I mean, it's worth mentioning, you know, that in some, you know, what's interesting about Gilles de Ray is that his, you know, he murders all these boys similarly to battery with girls but he um you know unlike her where there's there's no sense of you know he's actually in a sense kind of professing a kind of satanism right he he actually is is um engaged in a highly heretical kind of ritual set of activities um and is is also influenced by reading the accounts of like the roman emperors so he's he's kind of reviving a sort of explicit paganism and you know, and in a sense, he's ultimately tried by the church because his greatest crime actually more than murder is this kind of, um, you know, is essentially witchcraft and, and Satanism, right? Um, and the murders are sort of just uh, an exhibit of that. But the, but the real problem is 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 with his, his sort of doctrinal deviations. Whereas with her, there's no, um, you know, there's no explicit ethos to it or anything like that. Um, there, there, you know, on one level, it seems very pragmatic because if, if we take the, the idea that she's doing it to preserve her beauty, right, there, there's a sense in which she's just using whatever means are available to, to, to achieve that end, which, which is a kind of paganism in that it's, it's the cult of, of youth and beauty, right, which is, is sort of a even Greco-Roman pagan cults that she's um she's reviving but but is also very much a modern cult that she's anticipating um, absolutely and <clears throat> in a way that's um that makes her a bit stereotypical you know she mm-hmm. can't be she can't be just a, a pure mass murderer she has to have some some vain project <laughs> at the back yeah. of it yeah so in terms of these pop culture representations i mean one point would be this um you know, you know, <laughs> in a sense, the, the idea that she's like a, a sort of um, skincare innovator, right? She's, um, she's trying to uh, devise this, this uh, highly modern approach to, um, to uh, preserving her skin, which of course is a very, uh, you know, something that many people, many people are concerned with today. Um, yeah, but yeah. I think there's there's actually a, a treatment that's uh, I think like it's a vampire facelift or something like that where they inject mm-hmm. like blood plasma or something into into your face. Yeah, yeah so <laughs> she's definitely an innovator, way ahead of her time. Right. So that does come into so there are two film versions. You know, beyond there there are numerous kind of pulp horror type versions, which as I said are more that kind of gothic vampire slash Dorian Gray type image of her. And then you have um, these two modern films, both from about 10, 12 years ago, one with one starring Anna Friel and the other starring Julie Delpy. The Anna Friel one was actually a, Slo- a Slovakian production. Um, and it's, it, I mean, they're both domesticating in a sense because that one sort of tries to present her as having been framed by a sort of powerful enemy who 
who kind of got, who put these witches up to giving her these drugs that would make her sort of deranged and delusional. And that was what caused her to do all this stuff. But essentially she was getting set up, you know, so she was basically a victim of a more powerful man who set her up to do these horrible things. And in the film, she's kind of, um, you know, she's drifting between hallucination and reality, and it's not clear how much agency agency she has in the whole enterprise. So I think that's that's one kind of domestication, which ironically, in the name of a, a certain kind of feminist recuperation, where she's made into the victim of a more powerful man, also kind of deprives her of agency in the story. So that's that's one kind of interesting way that there's been an attempt to to rescue her in some sense um, and make her more palatable and in some ways less disturbing to to modern sensibilities. So um, I don't know if you've seen the movie, but I imagine that approach wouldn't surprise you that much. No, I would I would say that's probably, you know, the the first idea that a Hollywood uh, screenwriter would get like, okay, how we how can we uh, rehabilitate this woman and and make her likable? Yeah. <laughs> um yeah. yeah, I definitely haven't seen this one. I I think I've seen the the Julie Delpy one. I've I've actually I watched the trailer before our conversation because I remember I remember kind of like flashbacks from it, but um it wasn't very memorable, <laughs> at least I can say that because I uh I don't remember, you know, the the plot, but um I feel like the trailer does a pretty good job telling you what what actually happens, and uh, um, you know it's it's your typical Hollywood romance story, just much more gory. You know, she's uh, she's a, a jilted lover, and uh, she she needs to get her man back. Which I don't know, I don't even know if it's a, it's necessarily a, a domestication. It's 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 in the vein of, of one sort of feminism. At least the feminism that says that, you know, she can't be a mass murderer because she's virtuous because she's a woman. But it's also kind of, you know, it, it puts her at the service of, of her own vanity and her own, you know, it's it's uh, it wouldn't pass the Bechdel test. That's for sure. It's uh, it's very much man centric, yeah. her whole uh, her whole trajectory. Mm hmm. Yeah, that one, I mean, it has some very odd moments. There's like a scene towards the beginning where you see her as a child. And because the whole plot, as you were saying, revolves around her affair with this this other, this younger man who's not her husband. Um, and then he ends up marrying someone else. And that's kind of what drives her mad and causes her to go to these extremes. Um, because he's like left her for a younger woman, basically. But he, um, so <laughs> this is just an aside, but there's a really weird thing where she's um, at like the christening of this um, this you know, boy who will go on to become her lover later in life. And she, she's like looking at him as a baby and she's like represented as like a 10 year old girl. And she's like, um, and she like turns to her nursemaid and says like, you know, that is going to be my husband or something. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> um, but anyway, she, uh, so in this movie, which, you know, was kind of a passion project of Julie Delpy, interestingly, you know, best known for, um, before Sunrise and other charming sort of Gen X movies <laughs> yeah. is, is a, a um, yeah, it's a very odd kind of attempt at recuperation because she's, as you said, it's, it's really about her lifelong infatuation with this younger man who then leaves her and that's what drives her to seek ever more extreme ways of um, preserving her beauty. But so so it does have a little bit of that, like she's a skincare innovator sort of quality. And she is represented as the kind of girl boss, like, you know, she's really good at running the estate and, you know, while her husband is away and people respect her for that. But she's also, um, you know, incredibly um, 
sensitive to perceptions of her, right? And so that, that's kind of what drives her to this extreme. But then the other odd thing about it is that at the end, there's something like a kind of Martha Stewart, what I would think of as like a Martha Stewart defense. You know, when Martha Stewart was um, got in trouble for insider trading or whatever, um, you know, a lot of people were saying like, oh, well, like, you know, she got punished much more harshly than like, um, you know, the Enron uh, guys, which you know, mm. happened around the same time. And like, um, so <clears throat> in other words, the idea is basically, well, she lives in this very violent place. Her husband is going off massacring Turks and stuff. So, you know, why shouldn't she be able to get on, in on the action in some sense? <laughs> um, it's like, yeah. well, you know, and, and she gives some speech towards the end of it where she's like, you know, um, I've done nothing worse than like most of the men who, you know, are often, off at war, just kind of mercilessly murdering people and so on. So hmm. It's a very, it's a very odd position, um, and and very odd attempt at at again this kind of feminist defense um, because yeah. you know it it in some sense you know ends up depriving us of what's actually kind of unique and interesting about her. Um, yeah, and it's it's interesting how this type of plotline can completely suck the agency of, from a female uh, protagonist because. Um, she is not only a product of of her time, but she's a product of this man who, mm. if he didn't leave her, they could have just had you know the the fairy tale lifestyle, and she would have been happy. Uh, but because he you know he flicked that first domino, um, and you know was the, the evil patriarch leaving her for a younger woman, um, this all of this happened. You know he he set the plan in motion. He he got what he deserves, and he created the monster. Um, and at the end, the the whole thing. I mean, it, when you're when you're uh, protecting your, you know, because these were usually these were defensive wars. So essentially, all of the the Hungarians would just be on their own border trying to push back the Turks. They weren't conquering. Um, right. You know, it's definitely in in no way is it comparable to you know burning uh, you know fifteen year olds to death in your basement. No way. Sorry, lady. <laughs> and then I mean, the other thing that's a little bit odd is that she ends up not you know she's not executed um she's basically just subjected to um home imprisonment right she's she's um imprisoned in her castle and she dies there a few few years later so she doesn't you know given what she did she actually doesn't turn out too badly in terms of her um you know her end unlike um who's like probably the historical the closest historical analog who Again, I think partly because it was so tied to his sort of Satanism and explicit sort of paganism, he was burnt, you know, he was burned at the stake along with his accomplices. So, you know, in the scheme of things, she actually doesn't turn out too badly um, for someone who did the stuff that she did. Um, and, you know, that's, of course, partly because she's powerful. You know, she she has connections in the right places. And they, I think it's um, what happens is she she's looked on favorably by the Habsburg emperor, Rudolf II, I think. And then when he abdicates and his brother takes over, his brother is um, less, uh, you know, less willing to kind of do favors for family friends and uh, decides to allow for her prosecution to proceed because there are all these stories and rumors. But, but again, despite that, she you know, all that happens is she gets locked up in her castle. Yeah, um, I think that's also um, a difference between how kind of power acts in, in the Western part of Europe and in the Eastern part of Europe. Like um, these these kind of little um, 
they're they're almost like states within the state that were had you know local lords and you know she was definitely the 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 top dog when her husband wasn't there and then after he died in this very particular part so it might be that you know france for example is a much more densely packed much more um you know um there's, there's much more friction between between the areas and the the layers of nobility are quite you know more uh more complex there so it might be that there's just more accountability packed into into france um and you know this this is kind of a even even where she was you know her castle is a bit of a backwater you know much much more terrible mm-hmm. things can happen here with much much less accountability um than than in a place where you know the maybe maybe the catholic church is breathing down your neck and they they need to they need to put a head on a, on a spike outside to to make sure that all of their constituents know what's up yeah right and i mean you hear about um you know how the sort of austro-hungarian empire was this um in many ways much you know this it didn't really undergo the same kind of centralization that you saw in other European states and where, you know, kind of local potentates retained more autonomy. And um, so, yeah, in some way, I think the story and its resolution are sort of a, a historical relic of that, that time and place specifically, despite their kind of broader suggestiveness and implications. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting to me that, so, you know, based on those sort of pop culture examples, I, uh, yeah, I don't think our culture is doing a very good job at engaging with a figure like this, a historical figure like this. Um, we seem to have to try to domesticate her or to make her into kind of take away the the agency that she clearly had in order to kind of explain away her crimes. And you know, it's interesting to me in comparison with a text like the one I sent you, you know, the short essay about her, which is is a product of this, you know, sort of avant-garde writer from the the mid 20th century. And similarly Penrose, you know, who was who was herself a kind of bohemian Parisian artist and poet, um, you know, who was part of all these circles of of surrealist sort of intellectuals and and writers. So, you know, they they were obviously in their time very much um people who valued kind of um violating the norms and taboos and stigmas of their period. But, you know, there, there was a much greater, I think, awe for the, the sheer evil of this figure and an ability to, um, to kind of hold a certain valuing of freedom up against the, um, the extremes that that might produce. Um, so I, I think there's a, there's a greater honesty in these more, um, these earlier sort of avant-garde attempts to engage with her as a figure um, where, you know, there, there is a kind of aestheticization where um, she's, you know, um, you know, uh, the, the passage I read before says that, you know, there, there's nothing that can be, um, no compassion, no sympathy or admiration may be felt for her. Only a certain astonishment at the enormity of the horror, a fascination with a white dress that turns red with the imagination of a silence starred with cries which in which everything reflects an unacceptable beauty so i think the the unacceptable beauty is kind of a phrase that strikes me there that that there's an awareness that it's unacceptable and it sort of has to be unacceptable because that's that's the the ultimate sort of meaning of it um so i don't know i i i think our our contemporary culture's versions of sort of freedom and liberation are much shallower than the ones that we saw in that early moment when 
writers started, you know, modern writers started thinking about this figure and the, the much shallower ways that people are engaging with her today seem like a good illustration of that. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like the, uh, the, the concept of freedom is shallow because we, um, we can't engage with her at the level that she needs to be engaged with. Like the, the idea that, you know, we, we, our culture just cannot imagine her in the reality of her. And because we, we kind of repress that, that part of us, you know, we, we our model of reality is faulty. It's, mm-hmm. you know, it's stuck together with the, with super glue. It's, it's not, it's not real. So, um, you know, I feel like um, a healthy culture would find a way back to to dealing with the monstrosity of nature which she represents in, in such a you know such a incredible way and there's just kind of the there's a predatory beauty in this you know this is something that you can't really talk about now but it's like it's like seeing a, a lion rip apart a, a gazelle you know it's it's absolutely horrifying and it's you know you you have to protest it and be against it and you know but the thing is it is it is something that is, it's emergent from nature, you know, violence of that caliber happens in nature every millisecond, you know, there, there's, there's essentially an entire category of animals that are called predators that just eat other animals, just a, the, this is baked into the cake. And the fact that we, we don't know how to reckon with it, I feel like is, is a big part of, of the demise of our culture at the moment, because it's like, you can't just be looking at this nice part, you know, where we've we've arranged everything to look good uh, when, you know, your basement is full of monsters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this comes back to that, um, that point about sort of contractualism that, you know, in a sense, the, the version of freedom that, um, that we're describing as shallow is linked to this idea that, you know, your freedom is only limited by the sort of contracts that you willingly enter into with others. Yeah, but of but course, the- if there is a fundamentally predatory dimension of human life, then, you know, the predatory re- predator-prey relationship is not one that can be subject subject to contract. Exactly. And that that's that's not the only one. I mean, the the, the I think the biggest problem with the contractual view is that it doesn't have a concept of, of humanity that's that's normal. It essentially has this, you know, fake enlightenment ideal of uh, the rational individual, you know, going out, making deals, you know, deciding, having choice. Um, but we're essentially, you know, emergent biological systems bound to nature, bound to, to each other. Um, and I feel like, you know, consent, yeah, is important, but it's just a little layer of cream on top of this mountain, of this iceberg of, of humanity that's just, you know, emergent from our genes, emergent from our history, emergent from our ancestors and culture and places where we're from. Uh, all of these dimensions we don't talk about or we gloss over or we we just think are, you know, are just not uh, not current enough for us to engage with, but they're still there and they're bubbling up in many, many ways at the moment. I mean, history is really proceeding apace at the moment. It's quite, it's quite interesting. I feel like this has some Something to do with it, you know. Um, repressing nature, you know, is gonna is gonna lead to geysers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and again, you know, I I I think the the discussions about and sort of ethical quandaries that come up about sex robots that I brought up before are sort of an interesting way that you know the, these things that are very suppress the you know the, these understandings of of relationships that you know have this more predator prey quality or that. Um, exceed this this kind of shallow contractualism and model of consent. Um, you know that that they're 
conversations that we try to suppress, but then when some new development, like the prospect of, of sort of humanoid sex robots comes about, suddenly they're omnipresent, right? Suddenly um, that's one of the chief ethical concerns that are brought up because on some level, you know, that suggests there is a, a recognition that's usually unacknowledged that that these yeah. these potentials exist. Yeah, and that's that's you know that's where you see the the main ethical quandaries of our time, you know, because there's there's this whole dimension that we're we're not essentially allowed to talk about for us to maintain this uh, this liberal vision of the of the enlightened individual, um, and then you know you see things you know come to come to a head with the uh, with things like this, you know, where um, you know. To anyone, for example, if you if you take someone from like the you know the 15th century, plop them here and ask them about sex robots, they would have quite an intuitive view of why that might be wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, but now we, we're very very rationalistic about these things. So you know, someone who's been really educated in, in modernism and then you know a little bit of, of uh, what's going on right now. Um, right. Yeah, we'll, we'll we'll have a very nuanced view on this, which might might not be correct. You know, maybe your intuitive position has some merit there. You know. Yeah. Well, and this is something I like to come back to, and I tend to annoy people when I do. But um, you know, it's interesting when you think about the classic taboos that still have some currency. I mean, one that's you know somewhat related to what we've been discussing is cannibalism, right? That um, now the the limit cases that have come up in recent years are when you have these consensual cannibalism cases, right? There was some guy in Germany who basically got somebody who was, who consented to being killed and eaten by him, right? So, you know, that's, that's one of those limit cases of kind of consent and contractualism. And so there the taboo still overrides the, um, the fact that it was ensconced within a kind of consensual contract. Um, So, you know, it, it, it does seem like these, these instinctive aversions do crop back up um, when these kind of limit cases are, are breached. Um, yeah. It's the same with, you know, incest is, is coming back into discussion. I mean, there's just quite, a, quite more tolerance than I expected for the conversation, especially kind of in, in strictly rationalist circles, but mm-hmm. uh, the mainstream is still, you know, it's still way, way below the, the, the grossness threshold for, for everyone. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, I've brought up this point that, you know, there's no, what, what, it's interesting, right? When you bring up that as a, as a taboo that persists and ask why, people tend to claim it has to do with, you know, fear of, of uh, you know, deformed offspring or something, which makes no sense, right? Because um, most sex is not procreative today. So, yeah. and it, and it doesn't have to be procreative, right? So that, the idea that that's, the basis of the persistence of the taboo just doesn't really hold water, right? There's something, cause that, and that, you know, is, is something very, um, it, that seems like sort of a myth that's been created to explain in more sort of rationalist terms, what is actually far harder to kind of ground in any type of explanation that's sort of comfortable for us in modern times. Yeah, exactly. I think um, you know the the brain is uh, the great rationalizer. Um, you know there there are many positions. I think probably all all our positions are to some degree you know informed by instincts or aesthetics or things that are, qu- are quite subtle. Um, you know why why are you an adherent to to one ideology or another? Um, it's um, yeah. I think it's it's something that you know we kind of need to reckon with. It's 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 also kind of part of the the, the Dionysian aspect. You know masquerading as the the Apollonian. 
Um, and yeah, that's a, it's actually a big conversation in rationalist circles. I think you know this is this is partly what uh, this whole new post-rationalist space encompasses. It's kind of like the realization that uh, wait, <laughs> this this stuff is is quite more nuanced than than we thought. It's not just a math problem. It's it's got layers, man. <laughs> yeah. So I think this is a good. Um, final question to ask you about, actually, because I'm sort of interested in your, and you've written about this, but your sort of own evo intellectual evolution and how you, um, you know, you've historically engaged quite a bit with sort of online rationalism, but have, you know, gone through a process, as I, as I recall you describing it, where you, you began to perceive the, the limitations of that. And I mean, that's interesting in relation to the story we've been discussing, because you know, the reason that the surrealists liked this story, right, and, and other ones like it was simply because they were critics of what they saw as a kind of overly rationalized civilization, right, a sort of modern scientific civilization that, that needed to become um, reawakened to the kind of dark recesses of, of human life that, that go beyond what rationality is capable of really comprehending. So, I mean, that's that's kind of the link I would make. But I'm just curious about how your own thoughts evolved and how you describe your sort of current relationship to that sort of online rationalist world. Yeah, um, I you kind of naturally land in, in rationalism if you're like one of these uh, young atheists, <laughs> you, you mm -hmm. kind of want to. And that, that was definitely like my, my starting point with engaging with kind of online culture and things like that. It's definitely a, a, a very vocal new atheist, almost like an, an activist. Uh, here in Romania, it's easy to be an activist because, you know, no one was a, was a new atheist back then. So any conversation I had with anyone was almost like a, an activist act. Um, and uh, essentially kind of where where my transition started was um understanding um kind of how things happen at scale you know uh, from from complexity theory game theory um and then I was kind of implementing that uh, on the level of the societies that I lived in. Cause I, you know, I grew up in Eastern Europe. I lived here until I was about 18 and then I moved to the West. And these are two like very stark, there's a big contrast between these two areas in terms of just a, how this game of society is played. Um, I keep describing this, you know, Eastern Europe is kind of like the default is defect. You know, people are not trust, you know, they're not trustworthy. You should be trusted. I don't trust you, and and that's what happens. And the West, it feels to us, and you know, at least at least it was up until up until recently, um, kind of a, a collaborate a collaborative environment where people kind of trusted each other. Uh, it's a high trust environment, and this kind of sparked my my journey to to understand what the difference is. And I feel like um, a lot of my my kind of adoption of of traditionalism and uh, Christianity to to some you know, kind of my readoption of it uh, was through Rene Girard and kind of understanding his work and kind of, um, you know, kind of following this, the same revelation that he had when he realized that, you know, that, that Christianity wasn't just another pagan religion. It was a kind of a pattern interrupter. Um, mm -hmm. And it was the only way to create a stable, large-scale equilibrium um, and kind of have that as a as a basis for for social coordination. Uh, you know, this isn't this isn't you know revelation. I didn't didn't wake up with you know angels singing to me, but you know it, it just it just clicked to me, and um, it really did, did make sense that um, you know having a, a a good society is really important. 
having a, you know, a society where you can trust your fellow man, where you can collaborate with him, where you can know what he's thinking, know what to expect from him um, is very important. And I know this because this is not something that happens here and we're trying to get this, but it's almost impossible because you, you can't just, you know, conjure it. Um, so I feel like, you know, to me that that became kind of a, a focus point for me. And um, and then I've, I've read a lot kind of on the, on the critique of, of liberalism. I mean, I used to be obviously being a new atheist, you're kind of shoehorned into the classical liberal end, which, you know, doesn't really mean much. It just means that, you know, you're not a leftist and you don't like conservatives and you, you want to, you know, you don't like woke people. Um, and and then essentially I, I realized that that was a bit of a dead end. And then I kind of looked into like the critique of liberalism, like with, you know, inventing the individual while liberalism failed, you know, all of these kind of classical books that, that give you a little peek into, into why, um, you know, Whig history and the the point that we're at is not necessarily an, a natural outgrowth of this miraculous event called the Enlightenment. Uh, but it's, you know, it's, yeah, you know, f- things things are much more historically emergent from much earlier than, than we think they are. Yeah, well, that is all very interesting. I mean, Girard was obviously somebody who <clears throat> has influenced my thinking as well, quite a lot, and who I've written about quite a lot. I did, you know, I, I kind of find myself wanting to think about this story in relation to his work because it does have this kind of sacrificial dimension where, you know, I mean, it's her murders are a, again, a, a kind of reversion to a sort of pagan sacrificial cult, I think would be one way of thinking about it. But, you know, if you compare it to Gilles Duret, where it's actually much more explicit and much more Girardian in a sense, because he actually reads the tales of, of the sort of debaucheries of, of Caligula and other figures. And, you know, so it's, it's a very um, mimetic thing, right? He, he essentially, you know, like sort of Paolo and Francesca, there, there's sort of a scene of reading where he then um, decides to do the thing because he um, has some kind of mediator who, who, um, you know, re- represents his own desire to him in some sense and and thereby creates it. So, you know, that, that's a much more Girardian story yeah, I, I think um, there there might be um, a Girardian dimension to 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 the Bathory story as well. I, I remember reading that um, she was she witnessed um, a lot of, of violence and and kind of torture through her family. That that was kind of a famously you know bloodthirsty clan. Um, and then you know it, because we don't really know much about her inner life, she doesn't really have any journals or things that you know would explain you know why, why did you do this? Um, you know, kind of you know, there, there might be some, some, some weird mimetic uh, family line uh, phenomenon happening there. And at the same time, she's a creature of the mirror, right? She, she spends much of her days just gazing into her dark mirror, um, you know, which I imagine is obsidian or something like that. Um, you know, which I, maybe I'm tying her in my mind to actually the Aztecs, right? Who, who made mirrors of obsidian. And then some of those mirrors were um, taken to Europe by the, the conquistadors. And, uh, but obviously, um, you know, if, if you think about her in relation to paganism, you can't help but think of, and I'm, I'm really just free associating here, but of the kind of bloody altars of the, some of the Mesoamerican civilizations, which obviously would, would bring us back to the Girardian stuff. Um, but yeah, there, there's probably much more to say, but um, this is probably a good place to wrap it up. So I appreciate your uh, talking to me about this, as I said, uh, quite disturbing, but 
fascinating subject. Yeah, thank you for having me on. I mean, it's uh, it's been really interesting to explore it. I mean, I, I you know, you, you kind of live in this in this milieu here. Uh, you know, this is one of the legends that's that's local, but I've never really had a a chance to you know really think about it and what what the implications are. Yeah, have you ever been to her uh, castle by any chance? No, no, I haven't. Um, it's I think it's it's quite um, it's partly far away the one that she used to live i'm quite close to where she was born i could it's like an hour drive away but where she lived in slovakia is a bit farther away yeah well, it would be interesting i i was looking at some google image searches of of her castle and i guess it's a ruin i mean it's you can visit it but it's um it's not really intact yeah this, um, the landscape's littered with with those types of castles here you know there's not not much upkeep on the medieval side <laughs> yeah no, it, but it looks um, quite fascinating. And it's, you know, the when you read about her, it describes how the castles were all kind of up on high peaks and, you know, sort of protected by that, but sort of, you know, removed and isolated. So it, it looks very forbidding and... Yeah, because of the Turks, you know, it's it's all everything's been been handcrafted to have the high ground. <laughs> Just, yeah. Well, again, thanks very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you again. Yeah, same here. And please, everyone, check out Alex's work at her Substack and her Subversive podcast.